0: Uh, My name is Bill P., and I'm an alcoholic. Uh, As you can tell from this bank of microphones, we are uh, recording this. So, I want to say for those who will hear the tape and who didn't have the pleasure of being with us tonight that it was recorded on the 14th of January in uh, Jamestown, North Dakota, in the International Amphitheater. Seating capacity 15,000, and the place (laughs) is. What do they know? (laughs) I would be remiss if I did not begin by thanking the committee for their kind invitation to come here. Uh, Dick called me uh, initially some time ago, and he said, I've got some good news and some bad news. And I said, what is it? He said, the good news is we'd like for you to come to North Dakota to speak. And I said, what's the bad news? He says, we want you to come in January. (laughs) But it was a joy to come here. and My wife and I have had a very nice time. And I want to thank all of you for the many courtesies that you have extended to us over the weekend. Uh, It's it's been a very pleasant experience for us. And I want to thank Dick and Sue and all the other people who have been involved uh, with the uh, planning and organization of this event. I think you've done a wonderful job. (coughs) I um, should tell you, since we haven't met, really, in the past, uh, that my sponsor once told me that I would be a relatively popular speaker at Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, my sponsor is distinguished for his ability to tell me things I would rather not hear in language I cannot repeat and at times that I would not uh, particularly care to have the information. But uh, he's consistent about that. I'll talk more about it later. But he once told me that I'd be relatively popular in AA as a speaker, and I was flattered until he told me why. He said, you're too dumb to be controversial and too lazy to speak overtime. <laughs> It is one of the tragedies of my career in this fellowship that I have proved him to be right. So if you get nothing at all out of anything I say here tonight, which is a very real possibility, but you've got something doing at 9 o'clock, you will be on time. (laughs) I'm also a a very stress-less speaker. If you nod off or, you know, just can't resist the urge to uh, get in a few winks while I'm talking, don't worry about it. If I say anything good, it's probably been said and will be repeated in the next 90 days in any number of meetings that you will go to anyway. And if I say anything that you would have been upset by, you're better off sleeping through it. So uh, there's no stress involved here. If you snore, we'll probably nudge you. But aside from that, why, feel free. Uh, I spoke a minute ago about my sponsor. I don't know about you, but... Don't answer this if your sponsor is uh, is here tonight, but do you have the feeling on occasion that your sponsor is not quite bright?
1: <laughs> you know, that maybe you should have been a little more
0: careful in picking him? Now, I have had only one sponsor for the entire length of time I have been here, and I'm not about to trade him in for a newer model. Uh, frankly, I have done wonders with him. <laughs> but but there's a lot yet to do. I used to go to my sponsor when I was new, and I would say things like, uh, uh, you've got to treat me carefully. You know, I'm very sensitive as an alcoholic. And he'd say, you talk to a psychiatrist, and he'll tell you that sensitivity is really being paranoid. And uh, he would give me all kinds of other advice, you know. Uh, Read the book, practice the principles, uh, pick up the ashtrays, make the coffee, do everything you can to keep the program going, and the whole thing will work an awful lot quicker if you'll just quit drinking. And uh, that was about as spiritual as he got with me in the early days. And that was about as much as I could take. I would go to him with questions. I mean, I would frame a question that your 10-year-old child could answer yes or no with no trouble at all, and expect an answer from him. And he would tell me, in lieu of a yes or no, what happened to him nine years earlier in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, or five years before that in Iowa, in Storm Lake. And uh, and I really got to worrying about this guy. I, I was curious as to whether he understood the English language. And uh, after he'd done this to me about uh, oh, 10 or 12 times, I realized what was going on. He was telling me that the answer would come from the same place the questions did. I was asking him questions designed to let him tell me I don't have to work a particular part of the program that I was having trouble with. And he wouldn't let me off the hook. And I'm very grateful for that. He's the kind of guy that, uh, well, I'll tell you what he's like, when I was about 90 days sober, he was the, uh, the main speaker at the biggest meeting in Orange County in California. At that time, it was maybe 250 or 300 people. It wasn't very large. And uh, so he said, come on over. And he said, you can take 15 minutes. And I did. And I didn't know how to pace myself. I'd never spoken to a large group before. I'd only talked, you know, five minutes in participation meetings. And uh, they were an impressive uh, group of people. They looked a lot like you do. And uh, so I spent 15 minutes telling him all the important places I'd been and all the important people I knew. And my time was up, and I knew better than to run over, so I sat down. And while they were introducing my sponsor, I leaned over to him and I said, John, I didn't have a chance to tell him what I'm like now. And he smiled sweetly and said, they know.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oddly enough, this is the same guy I go to whenever I do have problems. Uh, Whenever something does come up that I need some straight talk on. And I'd never say this if he were here tonight, but I'll tell you frankly, I wouldn't trade this guy for anybody else in the world. And I recommend to anybody in Alcoholics Anonymous who has not yet gotten a sponsor to get one. Uh, It it is a meaningful uh, difference in having a sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous who can help you along. I picked one on a very simple basis. I looked around in the program for a while, and finally I picked a guy who had the kind of sobriety I admired and uh, tried to imitate it, in the same fashion that I got sober, not through any high-blown philosophical concepts or any abstract uh, approaches to the program, but I did it in the most simple possible way. I imitated those of you who were staying sober. As a child, would learn to walk or talk by imitating those who know how to do it better than he does. And it worked for me, and I'm very grateful for that. And my sponsor is a very large part of that. I uh, My sponsor and I have often laughed about various and sundry things. There was some mention made earlier in one of the wonderful talks we have had thus far and will have again uh, tomorrow about the fact that not everybody still believes that alcoholism is a disease. And when I came to the program, the disease concept of alcoholism was not as well known nor as widely accepted as it is today. Uh, And I'm still surprised to see occasional governmental agencies and medical facilities that do not understand the disease concept of alcoholism. Uh, they're easily identified because they treat you and I as if we were very large, extremely dangerous household pets. You know, We terrify them. And they say funny things, like you drink at all the wrong times. Uh, like hell we do. You and I drink at perfectly predictable times if you know how we think. Let me give you an example from my own drinking career. <coughs> if uh, I lost my job, if I were uh, running away from... Uh, everybody who who I owed money to, if my family and friends were walking across the street in the middle of the block to avoid me, if Murphy's Law were in full operation, if everything that could go wrong did, I was a lead pipe cinch to stay sober because I was comfortable under those circumstances. All of my life I carried around this tremendous burden of irrational guilt. And so when the world kicked me in the head, I thought I deserved it, and I was really quite comfortable with that kind of thing. Adversity was an old friend to me when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. If you want to get me into trouble, give me a better job than I'd ever had. More money than I really needed. Two or three really nice things to happen. And like every other practicing alcoholic, I became terrified at the prospect of becoming happy. And until I met you, I had only one way of getting rid of that terror. By drinking. And... uh, I think that that's indicative of the fact that people don't really understand how we think or how we approach things, because within the somewhat tortured logic that we use, we are perfectly predictable. Sometimes we're extremely uh, uh, forthright, and uh, we accomplish uh, interesting things in highly unusual ways. I'm reminded of the old story of the uh, <coughs> practicing alcoholic who goes into a bar early one evening while he's still able to function. And he's sitting there having a drink, and this absolutely voluptuous young woman comes up to him and sits in the next uh, stool. And she leans over and whispers into his ear, for $200, I will do anything you can say in three words. And he looks her up and down and said, paint my house. say that I feel very optimistic about Alcoholics Anonymous. I really do. I think that this program is vibrant and growing. And, uh, I, I, and I guess what I really feel is I miss uh, having had an opportunity to become a bleeding deacon. Now, when I was new in Alcoholics Anonymous, every meeting had three or four or five guys in the back, and ladies, uh, who generally scowled at everything we did. You know, they looked down their nose at us. And their whole philosophy could be summed up in one sentence. Alcoholics Anonymous ain't like it used to be. Come to think of it, it never was, but they didn't think about that part. And, uh, and I used to envy them, because they seemed to know the world in black and white. I mean, they knew what we were doing wrong, and we had no such uh, ability to see that clearly. <clears throat> and I kept thinking, you know, maybe if I get 5 or 10 or 15 years, uh, I can become one of those. And then I can look down my nose at everybody, because I will really know. And uh, I, uh, I sort of looked forward to that in the early days. But the only difference in Alcoholics Anonymous at the time I came into it and the Alcoholics Anonymous today is we are getting more intelligent and uh, more numerous newcomers than we've ever had before. The program seems to be absolutely proliferating. The number of groups and the quality of the practice of this program uh, is better than it has ever been. And I resent that. I was expecting to be able to sit in the back of the room and scowl at you. <laughs> and so far you haven't done anything wrong. <laughs> But I want you to know that if you do, if things suddenly take a sour turn, I'm going to get back there and get my licks in before it's all over. Uh, I've been here a little while, and I deserve uh, the opportunity whenever uh, uh, things start to slow up here. But frankly, I'm I'm very pleased about the way Alcoholics Anonymous is growing and the the directions in which it is growing as well. I think one of the reasons why you and I have every reason to be optimistic about the future of AA uh, is, is expressed, I think, in the organization of the fellowship. Did you ever try to to paint a a nice organizational chart for an outsider, say like a systems and procedures analyst, of how Alcoholics Anonymous works? You will drive them
1: nuts.
0: (laughs) You know, we have no lines of authority and responsibility. We can't discipline you if you break all of the traditions every day for the rest of your life. You know, we can't fine you, we can't send you to the minor leagues, we can't uh, throw you in jail, we can't even kick you out of AA. And yet we have never had a significant violation of the traditions, and the people who have come closest have left us voluntarily and paid a a severe price for that. Alcoholics Anonymous runs, I think, not, not on an organization chart, but runs well because we are slightly disorganized and God makes up the difference. We are just disorganized enough to be safe from the best efforts of our members to improve us. And for that reason, I think things are going very well in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm very pleased about it. Um, I've got a lot of changes of attitudes and opinions since I came here I don't know about you but when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous I was paranoid with fear that somebody was going to break my anonymity I mean this place was several levels below Skid Row you couldn't get any lower in my opinion and I knew how you were going to break my anonymity I had seen The Days of Wine and Roses twice when it was on television on Playhouse 90 it had not yet become a movie When I came to AA. But I'll never forget uh, walking into the meeting, remembering the casting of the AAs in uh, the days of Wine and Roses, because they all looked like they had faces like clenched fists. You know, you could strike matches on their nose. And I really expected all of you to look like alcoholics. I really did. And I knew how you were going to break my anonymity. I would meet one or more of you in the streets of Long Beach, California, where I attended my first meeting. And uh, he would speak to me. And everybody with an earshot would wonder, what is that old drunk doing talking to that nice young man? He must have met him in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's the way I was approaching things. Well, obviously, when I walked into my first meeting, which looked a lot like this one does tonight, I had that immense relief and great revelation that everybody gets on the occasion of his first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous when he looks around at the membership and suddenly discovers that Alcoholics Anonymous members are cleverly disguised to look like ordinary human beings. (laughs) And there is great truth in that old cliché that if you can't smell us you really can't tell
1: us.
0: (laughs) Now I've been keeping a survey in uh, the length of time that I have been here. Um, I've been to some international and national and state and local conventions. uh, I've always been one for going to uh, uh, meetings on a regular basis. And uh, I would say over the years that I have uh, been here that I've seen upwards of a quarter of a million recovering alcoholics in that period of time. And uh, I've been keeping track, uh, looking in each one of those meetings for people who look like alcoholics. And up to and including tonight's meeting, I am happy to report to you that I have seen fewer than ten people in AA meetings who looked like alcoholics, every one of whom turned out to be a member of Al-Anon. All <laughs>
1: There is a good reason for that if you
0: think about it did you ever make book on the new couple walking in which one is the drunk
1: you know.
0: I keep forgetting uh, I was anesthetized for a goodly part of my career out there <laughs> to this day I do not remember parts of my story but the poor non-alcoholic spouse has had to live through every rotten minute of it you know, they are bound to accumulate mileage in the process luckily when they get into hour nine they get younger looking quicker than we do and it all works out in the end and it's so much the better for that uh, <clears throat> I would like to offer one other observation in the interest of greater AA al harmony um, to those of you al here male and female I would like to point out that your drinking habits are every bit as peculiar to me as mine ever were to you
1: <laughs>
0: my wife Joni who is here with me tonight uh, is a good example of that She's currently clapping it down at the rate of about a fifth every three years.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: now when she orders a drink in, a, in some place, it's usually something that has an umbrella in it. And, uh, you know, you give her two of those little plastic drinks you get on an airplane, and that would take her all the way to Tokyo, <laughs> and she'd have some left over. I mean, that is unusual drinking by my sayings. <laughs> But, you know, uh, as, as scared as I was about my anonymity, if you're looking back on it, it wasn't very uh, indicative of the, the degree of my sanity. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous in Long Beach, California, um, I had been in Southern California for less than three days. And the guy who brought me to the meeting Uh, was the only person in the greater Los Angeles area who knew uh, who I was I mean if you had printed in the newspaper the following day that I had attended an AA meeting you couldn't have broken my anonymity nobody would have known and yet I was terrified that somebody was going to associate me with you as is so often the case I have come full circle and I am now delighted to see members of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, wherever I happen to see them on the streets, in ballparks uh, in meetings, any place else it's great fun for me and I tell people that I belong to Alcoholics Anonymous because it is less stressful for me when people around me know. I tell them for several reasons, one of which is nobody's ever offered me a drink once they knew that I belonged to AA, and so I don't have to make up all those funny stories at, at parties, you know, as to why I'm not drinking. Like, you know, my stomach is giving me trouble, or I'm thinking of becoming a Mormon or something of that type. <laughs> I, uh, I tell people because I'm surprised at how often... Uh, Five, ten, fifteen years down the road, some guy that knows that you belong to AA will encounter an alcoholism problem on his job or in his home or among some member of his family, and you may be the only recovered alcoholic he knows. And it's a good source of newcomers in that sense. And I tell him for that. And I tell people for another reason. I'm proud of you. And I'm delighted to be one of you. And uh, I, uh, I'm just tickled to death about the fact that I've been here for as long as I have. And uh, I, I have a couple of part-time jobs uh, that uh, are rather fun. I'm one of the public address announcers for the California Angels, the Los Angeles Dodgers, and the Los Angeles Rams. And I feel very protective about the Angels because that was the first employer I ever had that I told that I belonged to Alcoholics Anonymous. And that was 24 years ago. And their reaction, I thought, was, was interesting. It was, so what? One guy in the front office did say, does that mean you won't show up? <laughs> I said, no, it means I will. (laughs) And I think in the 24 years I've been there, I may be the only part time employee who's never missed a day when he was supposed to be at work. Uh, When I started with the Angels, I was the only guy in the press box who belonged to this fellowship. I am happy to report that on any given game day in Southern California, in any press box, you will find somewhere between three and ten active members of this fellowship, usually conducting an informal meeting before the game begins. (laughs) Uh, I've told this story before, but I'll mention it again. there was one sports writer in particular I used to have a lot of fun with uh, he'd been sober a long time and we used to uh, have dinner in the Press Box restaurant in Dodger Stadium whenever we were both there and uh, I really wish I had motion pictures of the way we were treated at, at the Press Box restaurant uh, we had better service there than any place I have ever eaten in my life we were treated better than the owner of the Dodgers uh, for a good reason the owner of the Dodgers does not belong to Alcoholics Anonymous but the Press Box waiter does <laughs> By God, we take care of our
1: own.
0: (laughs) And when business is a little slow, he sits down with us and we all talk in a slightly louder voice than we have to about the meetings we've been to and the speakers we've heard and the things that are going on in our lives in AA. And we do it for a good reason. Uh, With the exception of a drunk tank, I don't know of any place that has more potential newcomers to the acre than a press box. (laughs) I mean, there are any number of well-qualified sports writers working night and day for the privilege of joining us without having the faintest idea that that's what they have in mind. (laughs) And if you read the sports pages, I need hardly point out that as far as what's going on down in the field is concerned, it is only a matter of time before we take over. (laughs) I... uh, I had a lot of fun this past year. I did the first game of the of the World Series for the Dodgers. And it was on a particularly warm uh, Saturday after, afternoon, and we had to be there at 10 o'clock in the morning to go through all the rehearsals for NBC because the public address announcer puts the uh, team on the field and announces you know, the starting positions and all of the rosters. And then Nancy Reagan was there, and she had to be introduced to throw out the first ball. We went through the whole bit. And uh, there was a particular baseball player who had formerly played with the Dodgers. Uh, a wonderful guy uh, who has since gone into the Hall of Fame, uh, who is 23 years sober and an absolute delight. And I had to introduce him in the yes, course of things. And he walked over to me just before I was to start and said, uh, <clears throat> I hope you realize that as far as your home group and mine are concerned, it's just one drunk introducing another.
1: <laughs>
0: I, uh, I've enjoyed that. It's been a lot of fun. I uh, wasn't thinking in those terms when I came to uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> I grew up in a small farming community in uh, central Illinois, and um, even from my earliest childhood I was one of those kids who could never get enough affection or enough attention. Um, I was the oldest of three children, my, I come from a very loving and warm family life, and uh, my, uh, I always felt my father was lavishing more attention on my brother than he was on me. Well, as I look back on it today, as between my brother and I, I was the guy making the better grades and being involved in in athletics and doing the other things that that got me a certain amount of uh, uh, recognition from the outside world. And if I had two kids like that, one of whom was doing things well and the other wasn't, I'd be encouraging the other one too. I would have done the same thing my dad did. But I didn't think about it in those terms at that time. And I can remember from my earliest childhood wanting more and more attention and feeling guilty for not getting it without knowing why. And uh, it's no secret that when I was... 17 years old, I went into radio. Uh, If you can't get attention from one source, you look for it from another. And I ended up spending 10 years in radio and television earlier in my life. Uh, A very rewarding and a a lot of fun kind of uh, career. Uh, But largely, uh, I suppose, uh, seeking uh, recognition that really uh, had not been uh, denied me. I just wasn't sophisticated enough to understand the manner in which it was being given. Uh, I went I uh, went to college uh, I was afforded a, a very good education by my family uh, I went into the service uh, I was laughing today when uh, Milton was talking about uh, some of the uh, attributes of puking I can remember when I was a blue and in the Navy on a destroyer I, was, I thought I was going to die the first two months I was aboard that ship every time they singled up the lines I started throwing up and we had some Marines on with us one time and there were two or three out on the side uh, we were all throwing up and another guy comes up and he joins us and he's going at it and I looked at him and I said, you got a weak stomach? He says, no, sir, I'm throwing it as far as you are.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Early on in my life, my drinking began to slowly but, uh, but steadily interfere with everything else I was doing. Uh, when I was in communications, I never drank before I was finished working for the day because I have a tendency to be thick-tongued when I drink, and I didn't want it to interfere. And so for a number of years, my drinking pattern was to drink daily, probably get drunk each night, but not really get out of whack. Later, my drinking pattern shifted and I became a binge drinker where I would stay sober for weeks, sometimes months at a time. But when I started to drink, I would immediately drink to excess. I would, you know, literally find a, a bed, lay down in it and drink for two, three, four weeks until I literally could not drink anymore and then sober up. Now, when I started one of those binges, I got a supply of alcohol in. didn't matter what kind it was. Uh, I got, all I needed was my bed and a newspaper to read. Because, as you know, when you uh, drink and pass out, when you come back to and you're loading up to pass out again, it takes a little while. You can't do it in five minutes. So it was always nice to have something to read there. And uh, six hours later, you could uh, come to and start drinking again, read the same article on the same page of the same paper, and it would still be news to me.
1: LAUGHTER that was the pattern
0: I developed uh, toward the end of my uh, drinking career. And it was extremely severe. And uh, uh, I, uh, I can recall, uh, I was completely mystified by this. And almost to the very end, I, I nurtured this uh, illusion, if you will, that I think some of us share. Uh, that during the worst of my drinking, <clears throat> I kept thinking I was only going through a bad phase, and sooner or later I would get the hang of it and learn to drink as I did when I was 18 years old and uh, of course each time it got worse and worse and worse and finally it sunk through, even to me that I was never going to get the hang of it it was never going to get any better and if I didn't get any help I was going to die and I came to Alcoholics Anonymous in just about that frame of mind Um, I came here at a time when I had uh, the clothes on my back I had a $150 Pontiac that wouldn't run I had a full pack of cigarettes and uh, four cents in cash it isn't too tough to surrender when that's the sum total of your world of goods. And that's, uh, I lived in a recovery house on credit for two months because I had uh, no place to go, and no job, no prospects, and nobody to give me any money. I finally got a job selling T-shirts and sweat socks at the local J.C. Penney Company store in Long Beach, California. And uh, that turned out to be a really good job for a newcomer in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, retailing does not pay terribly well but you don't have to take the problems of management home with you uh, when you're just selling goods and uh, so I was able to continue going to eight to ten meetings a week while I uh, worked there and uh, I began to uh, get back on my feet and found myself an apartment and was able to get going and uh, when I was about uh, after I'd been on the program about a year a friend of ours in Alanine um, told me that uh, she worked for a large company that was hiring almost anybody who came in off the streets I didn't realize what a slam that was until I thought about it for a while. <laughs> but uh, I, I really did not like retailing at all. And I could see it was getting worse and worse. You're having to work nights more and more often, and I didn't care for that. And uh, here I was with an opportunity to really improve myself, you know, with a much better company and better benefits and a little more status. And uh, Most normal people, I think, when faced with an opportunity, regard it positively. You know, they feel good about it. Not me. I had to look at all the negative parts. Every good thing in my life has come about directly or indirectly because of you. And I will tell you right now that virtually every one of those good things has begun looking to me at least like an earthquake, you know, or a cyclone. And uh, when I got this information about the new job, I thought it was terrible. I had to think about all those negative things. What happens if I go out there and I get the new job And I quit the old one, which I hate, but at least I can do. And I don't survive the probationary period on the new one. I'll starve. Well, when the pain of inactivity became too great, I went out and I applied. And sure enough, she was right. They were hiring anybody who came in. And uh, (coughs) I got on. I liked it so well, I stayed there for seven years. Uh, I had already been in the Navy, so I knew how to look busy without really doing anything.
1: (laughs) Which is a tremendous
0: advantage in a large corporation. And I liked it. I really did. Well, when I was about three years sober, I decided I wanted to go back to school. Uh, I had gone to school and gotten a bachelor's degree early on. But I uh, wanted to uh, go change my career. And I had the schooling available and I had the money to do it. And my wife and my sponsor and my friends were all supportive. I was going to go back to law school. And I had every reason just to go in and tackle it. But I had to think about all the negative parts. What happens if I go to law school and I flunk out? My home group will laugh at me. My home group is like yours. Uh, Most of them don't know what anyone else in the group does for a living. Uh, We have no idea the horsepower of your car or the size of your wallet, and we really don't give a damn. We love you for what you are, for what you are doing in this program, and by virtue of that fact, your staying sober is helping us, and we love you for that as well. Uh, If I lost everything I own between now and next Friday night when my group meets, One or two people in the back would probably be secretly envious because now my story would be a lot better. (laughs) But my group was tremendously supportive of people. And so is yours and so is everyone else's. But I had to think of all the negative sides. Finally, when the pain became too great, I went ahead and enrolled. And I decided I would not worry about the end of the semester or the end of the curriculum or the bar exam, but I would go in with today's lesson today. And much to the shock of my wife and my sponsor and my friends, I not only graduated, I finished first in my class. And I was terrified, because now we had the specter of the bar exam looming up there. And I thought, okay, either I'm going to flunk and everybody will think I'm dumb, or I'm going to pass and go out there and starve to death. Well, at the time I took the bar exam, there were only like one-fifth the number of lawyers there are now, and uh, nobody starved. And so I went up and I took the exam and I passed, and, and things got very good for me financially. Uh, better than they had ever been. And I found that was also a problem to deal with. I am a creature of habit. And any change in my habit pattern, whether good or bad, uh, creates anxiety. It is the fact of the change and not the direction that causes the anxiety to occur. I would be just as anxious if I won the California lottery or went bankrupt. You know, the, the direction doesn't really mean that much. In any event, I, uh, I practiced law for a number of years and enjoyed it. And I had the opportunity. Uh, after a few years to uh, apply for a job as a commissioner in the West Orange County municipal court a commissioner in california does most of the things a judge does and uh, in my application i told them about you and i and uh, i later got the job and i was advised by the screening committee of judges who made the selection that one of the reasons i was selected is because i had a better knowledge of alcohol and drug problems and recoveries uh, than the other fellow who was the runner up I say this because if you be new or relatively new and are waiting to be discriminated against because of your membership in Alcoholics Anonymous, don't be surprised if it turns out to be the biggest plus you have in your resume. It can happen. I like that job. I could have done it indefinitely. But uh, I have a sketchy employment history. I only lasted about a year when the governor uh, called and appointed me to a judgeship in the municipal court in the North Orange County District. My sponsor thought it was absolutely hilarious that I was appointed a judge on his 30th AA birthday and that my district included Disneyland.
1: <laughs>
0: this is the guy who sends me get well cards on my birthday every year. I like that. I could have done it indefinitely. But after about five years, I was elevated to the Superior Court and I spent five years there and then I got an opportunity to go back into the private sector uh, and it was simply too good to turn down. And I did it a couple of years ago and I've been delighted with it ever since. Uh, the judiciary is an interesting career for any recovering alcoholic. I commend it to you. Uh, it always seemed to me that uh, if anybody ever came and wanted to know wanted the working definition of alcoholics, Uh, He should come to an arraignment court of of any municipal or local level court and sit in some morning. It is easy to tell the social drinkers and very tough to tell the alcoholics in a courtroom because the alcoholics will come in in judges' robes and police officers' uniforms and uh, lawyers' suits and probation officers' suits and they do their business and they leave. The social drinkers, on the other hand, come up from the basement in bright orange coveralls, Cecil County Jail. And they are mortally offended if you or I suggest that they might be alcoholics.
1: <laughs>
0: never, never ceases to amaze me. You have some interesting events that happen to you. I'll never forget, I was at a meeting one night in Huntington Beach a number of years ago. Small discussion group, and I love discussion groups like that. And on this particular occasion, the honesty was so strong, you could have put it up into tapioca. And uh, at the end of the meeting, we were just drained and the group secretary got up just before the meeting ended and said he'd sign court cards and we all said the Lord's Prayer and after the meeting an older lady was very well groomed came over to me and said would you sign my court card and I said well I would but I'm not the group secretary she said no sir but you are the bastard who sentenced me here (laughs) and I want you to remember me when I come back She brought me back twice the number of meetings we had ordered her to attend and I got to be a good friend of hers later. She passed away and was sober at the time. But after we became friends, I asked her, I said, why did you bring me back twice the number of meetings? And she said, because I hated you. She said, I wouldn't have minded uh, giving you the exact number of meetings if I didn't like AA. But she said, I enjoyed this from the very beginning. I liked the people. I liked what they talked about. I liked the way they treated me. And the more I liked that, the less I liked the idea that you were forcing me to be there. And so I talked to my sponsor, and she said, show him that he can't do this to you. Take him twice the number of meetings. (laughs) I really wish there were that kind of hate and malice in everybody who comes to alcoholics and (laughs) 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 alcoholics. Something else I've noticed during the time I've been a member of the Fellowship is that my character defects did not miraculously disappear as I got into this program and that uh, they have become manageable in nature only so long as I stay close and work this program to the best of whatever ability I have. I'm of the opinion that the first three steps in Alcoholics Anonymous are simply giving us a statement in depth of our condition and some of its effects. And that when we get to steps four through nine, if I had to give you a, a brief definition of what four through nine are designed to do, I would say it in two words, guilt removal. When you look at it logically. Uh, all of us come to Alcoholics Anonymous with this tremendous burden of irrational guilt. I don't know about you, but I had this terrible feeling. You know, and the way you manifest guilt, if you're like me, is not that you <coughs> sit around saying, no, "Oh, gee, I'm guilty." You have this terrible feeling of impending doom, that things are going to become terrible. You know, that a catastrophe is, is waiting around the corner, that you don't know what it is or how you recognize it, but it's going to be awful and it's coming quick. And I lived with that feeling, literally, from my earliest memories, until I got into this program and began working the the steps. And it wasn't until I got through about the ninth step that I, I realized over a period of time that that feeling was gone and had been replaced with the absolute assurance that really good things were happening to you and I. And we might not recognize them for what they were when they first started, but they were happening and would continue to happen for as long as we worked this program one day at a time. That everything in your future is good, and that you have only to put one foot in front of the other and apply the basic principles in order to have that good come about. And I am as convinced of that tonight as I was when I first realized it. And I'm grateful to know that, because I got into the the action part of the program, working the fourth step, at a time when I was very, uh, extremely anxious, very depressed. I'd been sober about 14 months, and. Uh, I was one of those guys who grabbed a tablet and a piece of paper and started writing, I'm an SLB, and here's why, and 70 pages later, I could prove it, <laughs> and that's about the way I did it. Now, I have friends that uh, spent a lot of time doing this in a very logical and calm manner, and I admire that. You know, they would sit there and write it all out with a uh, ballpoint pen on a piece of wax paper, or uh, do it with uh, an inventory of one's good side and one's bad side. My problem was with my kind of ego, if I had started writing about the good side, I wouldn't have gotten to the bad side yet, And, and the good side wasn't causing me any harm, it was the bad that was eating me up, and so I concentrated on what I needed to correct. Uh, When I finished the fourth step, I talked to my sponsor and I said, who should I take a fifth step with? He said, probably if you're going to take something in-depth that's going to contain a lot of material that's embarrassing to you, you may not want to take it with somebody you see every day. But he said, pick somebody that you trust explicitly and uh, that you do see uh, now and again and know well enough that you would be comfortable with and ask him. I had just the guy. I had a retired phony oil stock (laughs) swindler that I thought the world of, but I didn't see him all that often. And uh, so I called him, and I went over and I spent a number of hours at his house. And I used the fourth step as a guide, and I put it all in there. And uh, after it was over, he and I burned it, and we had a long chat. And he later told me that he'd probably taken 500 inventories, and that if he had cut out the names and dates and dropped them all into a big barrel, none of us would have been able to find our own, that they were that much alike. But it wasn't until I got all these things out and could look at them in the light of day that I realized that on some things, I was eating myself up with guilt for no reason at all. And on other things, I needed to adjust my personality so as not to do this again. And that was a critical part. It provided me with a game plan, if you will, for adjusting, to ask God to remove the defects of character, or at least get them down to where they don't continue to cause me the problem. And then, of course, came the obvious problem with uh, making amends. Financial amends were always the easiest to make. You know, you can save up the money and write out a check and it's over. Emotional amends were much more difficult. And oftentimes I was uh, very much pleased by the, the reception that I got from people that I had hurt. But I went back to tell them what I was uh, trying to do and, and how badly I felt about how I had treated them. And the, the reception was warm and, uh, uh, and indeed uh, very pleasant the, the vast majority of the times that that occurred. And I've always looked upon steps 10, 11, and 12 as maintenance. Uh, I'm one of those people who tends to pray better on the dead run than I do on Bended Knee. Uh, I try to get out and show God what I uh, feel about Him and about uh, the world I live in by being as active as I can in the fellowship. But I am a great one for also going to step study groups where you study these and the rest of the steps and hone up and refine. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous is a craft and like any other craft it can be improved by practice. And the longer we are here, I think, uh, the more efficiently we learn to practice it. And I think that that's one of the great advantages of time on this program. And that's something I don't want to forget. Uh, I had a great deal of fun in this fellowship. I came in here and I would have accepted anything you wanted to throw at me. I thought this was going to be the most dire and uh, horrible kind of life, uh, next to, you know, cashing it all in when I came here. And if there be anyone tonight who is new or relatively new, Uh, Let me offer a couple of suggestions. Do not come to Alcoholics Anonymous in order to die sober. Come here to learn to live this way. Don't come in here because you think it's some sort of a half-baked spiritual leisure world type activity where you can sit off in the side and and giggle for the rest of your life. Come in here because you want to go back out there and get more of all the good things that God has in store for you and I and everybody else. And in short, come in here and show us the very best you can do with the tools that Alcoholics Anonymous will give you. This fellowship is uh, indeed unique, and I want to talk about that a little bit in closing. I am absolutely convinced that Alcoholics Anonymous contains within it a source of power that is unlike anything you and I have ever seen before. You can call it by any name you'd like, but it's here. And it comes into play the minute you and I start to work these 12 deceptively simple steps. I first noticed it with my drinking problem. I came in here and one day at a time it was not necessary for me to drink anymore. And it had been necessary for me to drink before I got here. And I would happily have settled for that and treated you as a diet and done nothing else. Except for the fact that you kept pounding on me and meeting after meeting after meeting that these principles are not to be applied to a drinking problem. These principles are to be applied in all of our affairs. And so the same source of power which has enabled you and I to live comfortably without alcohol uh, is available to turn us into better members of our family, our professions, our communities. It is is indeed available to, to turn our lives into anything we want it to be. I had no idea 26 years ago when I sobered up and came in here that this source of power was here. Or that it was available for anything other than just quitting drinking. And I was as stunned as everybody else when I came in here and realized that you and I have an immensely powerful ally, if you will, in successful living in this program. If you want to get a glimpse of the power that Alcoholics Anonymous has, go to the best psychiatrist you know and ask him what kind of luck he's having with compulsive behavior patterns like us. If he's top-door, he is helping maybe 3 to 5%. For 53 and a half years, this program has been helping 75% of that same caseload. That is raw power. Put whatever label on it you like, it's here. And it's yours and mine to do with as we will. By using this power, by fulfilling the conditions of Alcoholics Anonymous one day at a time, and using this power, you and I can go anywhere we want to go, we can do anything we want to do, we can become any kind of people we want to become. There are no limits on you, except the limits you may put upon yourself. And it doesn't matter what your age or circumstance or condition when you come in here. It is equally true for every member of this fellowship. Pick it up and run with it. Never more, or never more. for example, do we have to settle with some sort of a half-baked kind of existence. For the first time in my life when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I, I realized early on that I could go first class, and I'd never gone first class. And I've gone that way ever since because of you. And so has everybody else in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm grateful for the fact that not only can we go first class, but you and I can adapt and change any part of our lives that are not meeting our standards right now. If I'm unhappy, unsatisfied, unfulfilled in any part of my life tonight, you have already given me the tools necessary to change it. I don't have to put up with that anymore. Neither do you. And if I choose to remain unhappy, unsatisfied, unfulfilled, I can no longer look to you or anybody else or any past event and say, well, the reason I'm unhappy is out there the reason I would be unhappy is in here because I have chosen to remain unhappy rather than to take this program, apply these principles and do with it as you have taught me to do over these years. And I don't want to forget that. uh, I'm aware of the fact that um, we've made uh, a couple of comments this weekend over the necessity for going to meetings. I'm a great one for going to AA meetings. I've never been uh, one to stay away for very long. I know people who stop coming to AA meetings and who do not necessarily drink, but sooner or later they all get far enough out in left field and eat ball gloves. And uh, I don't want to be like that. Uh, Speaking of ball gloves, I have one other observation to make. I assume this is Minnesota Twins territory out here, and I would uh, like to remind the uh, the ALA team members uh, who are playing uh, baseball in the aisles uh, in front of my room that uh, the American League rules prohibit any inning from starting after 12.45 a.m. local time. <laughs> hmm. but you know, I'm deeply grateful to, to be a member of this fellowship and, and to have the acceptance that I have found in here and have tried to extend to other people. I consider it the greatest thing that ever happened to me, and I'm I'm damn glad about it. I go to a lot of meetings because I like to see the promises of Alcoholics Anonymous worked out in front of me uh, day by day, as they indeed are in this fellowship. I go to a lot of meetings because I like to be around young people, and Alcoholics Anonymous is young. If you define youth as consisting of people whose aspirations are more important than their memories, we're the youngest group I know. I go to a lot of meetings because you're exciting. I mean, there's an excitement to being around people who live one day at a time, right now, who know that God doesn't have to give you and I one single additional thing in order for us to be happy right up until bedtime tonight. And that's an exciting thing. I go to a lot of meetings because I like to be around people who know that regardless of your age, circumstance, or condition when you come in here, that you may absolutely rely upon the fact that the best day of your life has not yet been lived. And every day that you stay sober, it gets closer. And finally, I go to meetings because I want to remember how I felt during that first year of my sobriety, coming in here and being incapable of loving anybody or anything, and having you offer me love again and again and again, to the point where you no longer can observe it without starting to give some of it back. And the first time uh, that it happens to you, you will never forget it. When you get up in an AA meeting and you look at a bunch of people and you honestly say, I love you. And I do.